This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Listening colour. Welcome. It's the brand new season of Jazz Shapers and it's incredibly lovely to be back. Hope you're all well. Jazz Shapers is where I bring you the pioneers shaping the world of business together with the musicians shaping the worlds of jazz, soul and blues. And we've got some brilliantly inspiring, problem-solving, risk-taking guests joining us over the next few weeks. My guest today kicking off this season in style is Michael Iborda, founder and CEO of Powerful Media Group, a media and executive talent agency aiming to showcase, connect and create career opportunities for diverse individuals. Growing up in South London and Nigeria, the latter where he qualified as a lawyer, Michael's earlier career included a stint owning a restaurant and retail outlet before he became a journalist, writing for The Observer, The Times and others, and spending nine years turning the ethnic media group into the biggest minority ethnic newspaper organisation in the UK as its editorial director. While at the ethnic media group, Michael helped create The Power List, a list of 100 of Britain's most influential black individuals. We wanted black kids to look up to other people in the professions and beyond, he said. The first, now annual Power List, was published in 2007, the same year Michael founded Powerful Media. The company have since expanded into talent search, events and recruitment, and also published Future Leaders, focusing on the next generation of talent and social mobility. Thank you for joining us. The first session of our new season, and it's you. Help me understand this, Michael. You started life, born in the UK, but then you moved to Nigeria at yeah, a young so age. I was born in the UK. I grew up, it's a really strange life for many people probably. I grew up as foster parents initially in the countryside in, in Essex. And in those days, a lot of Nigerian kids were fostered out. Because my, like my parents came here to study. My mum and dad came here to study. And it, it was quite common for them to foster out their kids um, to white foster parents. Because? Um, because they were studying and yeah, basically they, 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 yeah, they were studying. So I guess also it was probably part of trying to get their kids to understand what English it, culture. English culture. Yeah. Maybe yeah. it was that as well. I'm not yeah. certain about that. Yeah. But I guess somewhere along the line it might have had something to do with that. And then went back to my parents when I was uh, nine, I think I was. Having had a wonderful time with, with the foster parents. A lot of people though, and I should sort of say this, um, a lot of people who were fostered in those days suffered horrendous abuse because it wasn't through a system. It was a, it was like sort of an independent mm. sort of fostering arrangement. Myself and my sister, we were really lucky. We had fantastic foster parents who were just like, as far as we were concerned, they were our mum and dad. So, you know, they were lovely. Uh, we had a great time. Um, we lived literally on a, a next door to a farm. And, you know, I could name every bird's egg and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> it was really... So coming back to London was actually quite a shock mm. at the age of nine. You know, you, as a kid, you, you, you adapt quite quickly. And my parents, we, they lived in southeast London. And then I, um, then they divorced. And sadly, four years after that, my mum passed away. And we, my auntie came from Nigeria and said she wants to take us there. She didn't want us to go into care here. So she um, came and took us to Nigeria. And in Nigeria, obviously, both your parents studied when they were in the UK and they came mm. here to study, as you said, which is quite a common Nigerian yeah. story, right? It's a story of, yeah. of immigrants coming and making their way. Mm. And I've heard that many times. You then obviously ended up educated guy, go to university, study law yeah. beca and became a lawyer. Did you want 
to be a lawyer? I know that may sound like a strange question, is but it, was it more of a familial, this is what Michael's going to do? Yeah, I wasn't any good at maths. So it was the only yeah, thing that, that you choice. could do. It was in, it was a <laughs> words profession. or numbers, and you had words. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was. I was no good at maths. Um, I, ideal world, I think I'd have done. I'd have studied economics because that's actually really interesting to me. I wasn't madly interested in being a lawyer, although I guess while you study it and you know you become more interested, it wasn't ever a dream of mine to become a lawyer. But you know, I did it, and you know, did a degree, and I did law school, and what have you. I actually appeared. Um, in court a couple of times, which was an interesting experience. But uh, And then when did you come back to the UK? I came back to the UK in 85, I think it was, ostensibly to do a master's and then to do the solicitor's finals here and qualify here. Uh, did the master's, but then I wanted to work as a paralegal, but I couldn't get work as a paralegal. I mean, it was just, I'm, I must have gone, gosh, I can't remember how many interviews I went for. Mm. Uh, and it, it was all, they were all no's, you know. And I'd gone to quite a good university in Nigeria. At the time, it was the University of Ife. It was actually probably the best. You know, we'd had Nobel Prize winners come from that university. But here it wasn't, you know, they just didn't look at it like that. No. Um, Obviously, parallels with today, there's very few black lawyers in the profession. I imagine it was much tougher then than it is now. Yeah, it was. it was incredibly tough then for me, certainly, and... There was um, an instance when I went for I went for an interview for a paralegal, and they simply told the agents that well they, when I got there they said that they weren't interviewing that day, and when I went back to the agency to find out why they'd sent me for a non-existent interview, the agency turned around and said well we're really sorry but they called us back and said they don't take on black people, as uh, simple as that. That would be I don't think that would happen today. Mm-hmm. No, today is it's different. I think today's issues are more about the fact that a lot of firms don't believe that there are black lawyers out there. So one of the things that we've done, and it, it came out of having this power list in our Future Leaders publication, we set up our, our recruitment business about 18 months ago. We set it up because we were pressured to set it up. I'd never really wanted to do recruitment. But everybody was saying, look, you've got so much talent there that you need to introduce this talent formally to organisations that are interested in it. So we decided to do it. And we decided to do law simply because I knew a little bit about law and because the woman who works with me on that, Denise, she worked with law firms for quite a long time herself. One of the things about diversity is this. If you don't believe the talent is out there, you won't go and look for it. And I think the stereotype is that there aren't a lot of black lawyers out there, whereas, in fact, there are quite a few. So even within London, within commercial firms in London, we've identified something like about 50 partners, which most people wouldn't even believe existed. In fact, quite a lot of them have never met one another before either. We do an event, a monthly event called Path to Partner. We have 30 to 40 associates, well, it's virtual now, in the audience, three partners on a, on a panel. I moderate, and the idea is to get the, the associates to get an understanding of what it takes to get to partner. But we're not short of associates. Mm. So there are quite a few lawyers out there who are black or African-Caribbean her- heritage. But when you were applying back in 85 to be a paralegal, there was nothing. Oh, I, th- I would imagine there weren't, there weren't that many out no. there then. Um, but but the, the interesting thing about what you've just and there's a lot that you've just said in a, in a short period of time, just to unpack it for a moment, the lawyer thing 
when you were trying didn't didn't work out for you. No, it didn't. Work. You became a journalist. But in reality, what's happened is in the last 15 years or so, you've sort of struck me as a reluctant entrepreneur. Oh, no, not reluctant. Not reluctant. No, no, no. Because you mentioned the, the recruitment thing was like, well, they made us do it. No, it's almost no, no. like, is it, it where does it, because for me, where does this bridge between love of writing, love of journalism, love of communicating, of sharing, yeah. of explaining and articulating all those things which journalists love, and then this this commercial entity which evolved how did that oh, just briefly how did that happen? different parts of my personality hmm. so when i was in nigeria my auntie she was a businesswoman and she she, she used to um, build low-cost housing my job in the summer holidays was to drive her around so i got to know every part of her business so part of me was always i was always going to do something on my own and i was always going to do some sort of business it was just... You just almost, felt... And you felt that from a young age. Yeah, really. Yeah. But also, I'd always wanted to be a journalist since I was a kid. I love sport. So I became a sports journalist. When I realised that this, this law thing wasn't really happening... And, you know, I've got to be honest with you. I'm not sure how much I wanted it to happen. But the great thing about having gone to Nigeria was that it instilled me with a belief that you can do anything. Going to Nigeria it completely changed things. Stay with me for more from my guest, Michael Iborda, in a couple of minutes. He's going to be back. But right now, let's hear a taster from the Mishkon Academy digital sessions, which can be found on all of the major podcast platforms. Mishkon Dere's Victoria Piggott talks about ESG, that's environmental, social and governance, and what the resulting long-term benefit is for businesses putting purpose before profit. The Mishkon Academy digital sessions. Conversations on the legal topics affecting businesses and individuals today. People have always made choices based on their beliefs. And so socially responsible investing is is not new. But ESG is relatively new. The phrase was first coined in 2005. And socially responsible investing and ESG are actually different. So ESG is based on an assumption that ESG factors have financial relevance It was the former UN Secretary Kofi Annan who really started the movement in 2005 and he wrote to 50 chief execs of major financial institutions because he wanted to integrate ESG into the capital markets. He was saying it's good business sense, it's more sustainable and it's better for society. So obviously it's been going on for 15 years and there are some people who say, well, you know, maybe this is a fad. But I don't think that's right either, because if you look at the way in which technology has enabled everything to be more transparent, the data is available. And you have to look at people's access to tech, which empowers them to express their own values in investing. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to compromise on returns. A really obvious example here is climate change and how scientific certainty has forced directors towards good stewardship because the impact that businesses can have on the environment is now incredibly clear. The Mishkan Academy Digital Sessions. To access advice for businesses that is regularly updated, please visit mishkan.com. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. You can enjoy all our former Jazz Shapers and indeed hear this programme again with Michael by popping Jazz Shapers into your preferred podcast platform. 
or you can ask Alexa to play Jazz Shapers, and there you'll find many of our recent programs. But back to today and Michael. Michael Iborda, founder and CEO of Powerful Media Group, a media and talent agency showcasing, connecting, and creating opportunities for diverse individuals. It strikes me that the point you made about your time in Nigeria was the time actually that you felt that anything was possible and that then you translated that later in life. You said two things, actually. One is anything's possible, and two is I was always going to run my own thing. So even when you were writing, what was were you going to some inexorable end where it was like it was going to happen, or did you engineer you know, that powerless opportunity when they said, go and write, and you said, hold on a minute, I've got a, I've got a better idea? So Were there other opportunities before then that you chose to pass up? So I, I'd always been one of these people who wanted to do something entrepreneurial it had always been a part of me I remember when I was a kid even I didn't have a paper round or I did have one paper round for about for a minute I think it paid a, a one one pound 20 a week and then I discovered that if you sat down with the what was then the evening news and you know you got a, a paper stand you could make eight times that amount of money a friend of mine had one and I did a deal with him that I'd, I'd share it with him and I ended up taking it over from him how old were you at the time Oh, it must have been 11, something like that, something like that. You know, and I, I was always interested in, in doing things like that. When I was looking to make money to do the, my solicitor's final, and I couldn't get the work with the law firms, I decided to look for money myself. I, I kind of had a job. I got a job in a, in a local council uh, for a while. But while I was there, I was always pursuing other ideas. I bought a property. In those days, it was pretty easy to buy a property. And then I had, you know, two or three of them renting stuff out. And then with some friends, we opened up a restaurant. I had a shop selling trainers. Tons of stuff. In the, in the King's Road. Yeah, yeah, yeah loads yeah. of stuff like that. Did the restaurant thing finish before the powerless began? Yeah, way before. Way before. Way before. And just, just tell me about the, the powerless thing, because this has obviously been the platform for you. So I'm now looking, I'm going, here's, here's a guy who's had lots of different experiences, who's trained to be a lawyer who loves writing, is also an entrepreneur, there's lots of different strands here, and then this thing comes along, and then you convert it into what it is, you know, this sustainable Today. idea of celebration of, uh, of talent. Yeah, so the, the powerless came again. It came out of my experience in Nigeria. And as I say, what Nigeria gives you is, what it gave me was the sense that there are no barriers. You can be whatever you want to be. And... What I wanted to instill in young people here was that same sense without sort of sending them 5,000 miles away to catch malaria or something. You know, I wanted to instill that in them. And one of the most powerful things there that I hadn't seen here were role models. When I grew up in in London, I'd never met a black lawyer, for example. I'd never met a, a black doctor or a, an architect who was black. They just didn't exist in my world. I, you know, it was a working class family. It just wasn't part of your world. There was nothing on telly that showed you that either. So you just didn't see people like that. When I went to Nigeria, though, all of a sudden, I'm surrounded by that. You know, there were family members who were doctors, lawyers, you know, accountants and things like that. And you looked at them and you thought, hang on a minute. They're not that smarter than me. They are not that smarter than me. So... I can do that. And essentially, that's why I became a lawyer. I had a cousin who was a lawyer. You know, he, he drove a really nice car. He just graduated, um, lived in a really nice apartment. You know, he got really nice girlfriends. And I thought, you know, I can do that. 
having spoken to him and understood what he did and what have you, I thought I can do that, no problem at all. So I said, okay, I'm going to do law. Why not? The sense of purpose, though, Michael, you talk about role models and you said, listen, I grew up and I suddenly had black lawyers, black doctors. It was all around me because I was living in Nigeria. It's one thing loving the writing. It's another thing wanting to do your own thing. And it's another thing, and I think this is the thing that intrigues me, about actually wanting to, as you said, instill the fact that there are opportunities to create role models. That's a purpose-driven or a values-driven agenda. Did that, was it just because of your own sense? I mean, you, you said something earlier to me about you weren't angry about the prejudice that you have been shown over the years. You seem to have channeled... Or about the, that particular instance. Or about instance. that particular instance. Yeah. But the sense of purpose in wanting to do something which instills a different view of the world, which gives people role models, which then changes their future. Where did that desire to actually do good sounds a bit corny, but that's essentially what it is. Because you can earn a buck, you can run your own show, you can write without doing any kind of broader social societal good, but you chose something intentionally which has. Yeah, I think there is, um, and again, you know, for, for a lot of black people in, in the UK, a, a lot of people who I know who are professionals, you know, they want to give something back. They want to show a lot of young people how they can become as successful as them. But why do you think that is? That's the thing I'm, I'm interested in. That's a really community-driven view of the world. It's because of the stereotypes. It's because of the fact that, you know, a lot of people don't think that that's what we are. If I talk to people who I now know from the, on the power list, there's an awful lot of them who, who give money to black charities. There's an awful lot of them who mentor young kids. I mean, pretty much... Everybody does that, actually, mentors some kids. And it's because they want to see, they want these kids to have a, as bright a future as possible. But they also want to get rid of the stereotypes surrounding people in, in, in the UK black communities that, you know, that we're not professionals, that, you know, we play a lot of football, there's a lot of entertainers and stuff like that. But actually, when it comes to being lawyers or doctors or tech people and working at hedge funds and stuff like that, there's actually not really that many people who do it. Whereas there, there actually are, and there actually are quite a lot of successful people. But it is just a thing that pretty much, as I say, everyone I know wants to, wants to do something in terms of giving back. So, ha, sorry, and has it changed since 2007? Do you think it's a more positive picture I now? I think there are more people now who want to give back than then. And is it easier every year to put together your power list, or rather is it harder because there's just more competition? It's it's a really weird thing. You'd have thought diminishing returns would have set in by now yeah. because we're looking for the, the 100 most influential black people in the UK. This year, we've got more new candidates than we've ever had before. So we're so finding there's a lot of change people. in in the hundred. Is there quite a lot of shifting? It shifts people? by about 30% a year, okay. around about 30% per year. Yeah. And, you know, now it's become quite a prestigious thing to be on it. And if you, you know, if you have a look at some of the people who've been, for example, our number one, they really are quite interesting and very, very, very successful people. One of them was on this program at least twice. And that was Gina Miller. Oh, some, so Gina, yeah. who some people may know. The idea for The Powerless back in 2007, as I understand it from you, came from a uh, wanting to present the positive and celebratory side of being black. Of, of, of black success in this country. As you look back now, what are you most proud of achieving through the creation of The Powerless? What The Powerless has done has brought together 
a network of very successful people. And that network of successful people is influencing a lot of younger people to follow in their footsteps. And that's exactly what we wanted to do when we first started it. It was really that simple. I thought, you know, what, I'll get some advertising in, you know, that'll pay the mortgage. But actually, I wanted to, as I say, replicate my personal experience in Nigeria of having role models and the difference that those role models made to my life. And I thought that would work with, with kids here. And it, and it actually has. It actually has. That's probably the best thing that's, that's come out of it. It's the creation of a network of, of very successful black people. Um, they've, they've become friends. They've started to do business with one another. You know, I think some of the younger people, we've even had a marriage, I think. Some of the younger people. You look like a matchmaker, Michael. I was going to say, this is the other side. That may be the next business that we uh, Definitely, I'm in as well. I'd like to be a shareholder. But the the other thing that strikes me is that, and you've been proudly, we have been proudly talking about black rather than BAME. And and the BAME acronym, as you called it, you said you've banned it from your publications and you prefer of African or African Caribbean heritage. And I'm not going to... Um, describe how you also go into the acronym because yeah. we, we don't need to do that. But uh, essentially, you feel like it's a made-up term. Has that honesty about focusing on the black community stood you in good stead? And are, is the Black Lives Matter movement that we now see simply the natural extension of showing people the truth of what needs to be addressed? Yeah, I think you know the acronym BAME, it does mask the, the realities in terms of black representation. You know, it was it kind of set out to do that from day one, anyway. But with black the Black Lives Matter thing that's 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 come to prominence since the um, tragic death of George Floyd, I think it's it's refocused people's minds. And you know, people will say, well, you know, why play one minority off against another? The the truth is, if if you look at the numbers in terms of representation in right across the board, people of African and African Caribbean heritage are almost always at the at the wrong end of those numbers. Almost always. Um, and lumping everybody in together, you don't see that. So a lot of companies will say, oh, our BAME numbers are great. Ah, really? Okay, so tell me how many black people you got. Even um, the one of the government ministers the other day uh, asked how many black people are in the cabinet. And he points to Priti Patel and the Chancellor Rishi Sunak. You know, they're not black, and then with all due with respect all, yeah. to them, they're not. They're not. I don't think they describe themselves they as black probably, either. Let's, no, no, they wouldn't. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's probably time to retire the the, the acronym, yeah. BAME, and let's try and focus on what people really are. Every community has its own issues and its own problems, and it's and, and it's doing well in certain areas, and it's not doing well in other areas. Lumping everyone together is no, it doesn't really help that. Just before I ask you about your song choice, I'm conscious of time. When you look back in 10, 15, 20 years, whenever it is that you stop working, if, if indeed you stop working, yeah. because I've got a feeling you, you probably won't in some form, what will you have defined your success by? I've always said with this, our company is a really strange company in the sense that we're, we're working to put ourselves out of business. So if we, if we are able to sort of stop doing what we do at any stage, it will mean that we're no longer necessary and a lot of the issues that we are that we're working around and trying to find solutions to will have been dealt with. Michael, it's been a pleasure having you here on the very first programme for the new series. Thank you so much for your time. Just before I let you go, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? My song choice is my favourite artist, Curtis Mayfield. We the people who are darker than blue. 
I think it really works in in the context of a lot of what I've been speaking about because it's about it's about black people and self empowerment. That was the song choice of my business shaper today, Michael Eborda. He was steely, absolutely clear that he was going to achieve and continues to achieve exactly what he set out to do. And yet kind at the same time, someone who believes in the importance of role models and the ability for young people to look up to people who are doing really well. And someone who has channeled the injustice which he has experienced in an incredibly positive way. Really good stuff. You can hear our conversation with Michael all over again whenever you'd like to. As a podcast, just search Jazz Shapers or you can ask your smart speaker to play Jazz Shapers. Alternatively, if you're making the most of Monday morning, you can catch this program again just before the business breakfast at 5am. The new season of Jazz Shapers continues next Saturday with my next business shaper, Sarah Bentley, founder of Made in Hackney, a charity and eco-community cookery school. That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a lovely weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal.